0: Welcome to My Middle East, the podcast from Embrace the Middle East. Embrace is a Christian charity working with and through Christian partners in the Middle East in Egypt, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Israel, and Palestine. Our partners work with people of all religions and beliefs to lift up vulnerable and marginalized people and their communities. I'm Timothy, CEO of uh, Embrace the Middle East. And throughout this series, I'll be talking to uh, people from all walks of life with different perspectives uh, on the Middle East. And hopefully with their help, we're going to paint a picture of what the Middle East really looks like and feels like today. Now, we're absolutely delighted because the first guest who's going to help us explore the Middle East through her eyes and her experience is Embrace's uh, advocacy advisor, Connie Massalam. Connie was born in Palestine, in East Jerusalem, in fact, but was forced to flee the country with her parents when she was a baby, when war broke out. She later returned and spent most of her childhood in Palestine, but now lives in the UK. Her parents still live in East Jerusalem. And I'm not gonna tell you anymore because I'm going to welcome Connie. Tell us a little bit about you, Connie, and, and if you would, a little bit about how you feel Uh, about the Middle East in which you uh, were born and grew up.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, I just want to say thank you for having me. I I, uh, was very fortunate to live in a a mixed-cultured household. So I was, my father is Palestinian and my mother is English-Scottish, probably more on the Scottish side than anything else. Um, And uh, yeah, so I spent most of my childhood there and have lived overseas for a few years, Um, but my heart always, um, stays with Jerusalem. Um, it's a very difficult place to to grow up in. Um, it's not a usual childhood. Um, you know, I moved to England when I was 18 and subsequently different countries after that. But I always find that life in the Middle East is unlike any other place, even in Jerusalem itself. Um, and I'm very excited to tell you a bit more about it
0: yeah great because actually I think that's that's what we' that's what we want to know is what is the difference? Um, and And then you're in a great position to tell us because you've lived in this country, you're living here now, you've lived in in Jerusalem. What are the things that stand out for you uh, as being different and 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 also actually, you know what what things are the same?
1: Oh, that's you've given me a very difficult challenge there. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's a lot that is the same, a lot of it that is different, and it was interesting because earlier on, you know, I um, was looking back at old pictures ye- um, yesterday of um, some Christmas pictures, and I and I realised that the last time I spent Christmas in Jerusalem properly, over a longer, you know, longer than just a week, was about three years ago, and that was that was just before the pandemic. Um, and spending Christmas itself, in, you know, is in England is very different to spending Christmas in Jerusalem, um, you know, whether it's in terms of faith, worship, you know, contemplating, but also in terms of rituals, you know, who you see, who your neighbours are, what things that you do, the environment. I mean, very simply, your dinner table at Christmas is very different over there, that, you know, in Jerusalem than it is in the UK. And isn't it interesting that I've... Having lived in Jerusalem for nearly thirty years, you know, I—it's not one day is the same, not one Christmas is the same, not one feast is the same. It's uh, whether it's in terms of political events or whether it's in terms of—I don't know—you know, you know um, infrastructural events. Things change, roads change. You know, what your neighbourhood will have looked like last year will be different from what it is this year. Um, and you know, spending time in England. Every, you, can, you can plan your day in England, you can plan your week, you can plan your month. You're only, you can do that only to a certain amount uh, when you live in, in Jerusalem. Uh, yeah, I think those are the things that stand out for me.
0: You, you know, you've touched on something really fundamental there, fundamental to quality of life and just way of life. Which do you prefer do you prefer the predictability um, of, of life in Britain um, or do you prefer that that the, the unpredictability of life in the Middle East particularly in Jerusalem or in the West Bank
1: yeah I love that question because it's it's something I often ask myself um, at, uh, daily actually um, with with what I do and how you you know I do things in life and and you know Living on the day to day, sometimes I say, "Oh, so much easier to do it back in Jerusalem," or you know, or if it's in England, I'll go, "Oh, isn't it quite nice to plan something three months in advance?" And um, and one of the things, you know, if if you're in, in Jerusalem or you have the privilege to um, uh, benefit from um, health services in Israel, um, then you know you can, depending on what quality of service you've got, you could make a direct call to um a specialist um and be seen within a week but in england in a health system actually you could be put on a waiting list for 3 months you know or 6 months or whatever but and and these are the kinds of things i, I actually thought about yesterday uh, when i was trying to book an appointment and um but you know and i and i often ask myself you know what where am i happiest you know where what what makes um, what makes life fulfilling and joyful. Um, whether that's the routine or whether that's, you know, where we, where, where I get my energy from. And, you know, if you'd asked me this question when I was 18, I would have said definitely the UK. I mean, this, there's no question. I've lived in Jerusalem for 18 years. I'm ready to move on and find, uh, go to university, have an education, live new experiences. Um, but that in itself, what I made was very difficult. There were so many things I didn't know how to do, so many cultural differences I wasn't, um, ex- well, I had never been exposed to, I wasn't aware of. Um, but you know, if you ask me the question today, actually, I really miss being in Jerusalem, I miss um, being in that chaotic environment where you know I can you know, you go out of the house and get into the car, you drive down the road and you realise, oh, there's a flying checkpoint. That in itself is really chaotic um, because you can't plan a day because you realise, actually, I've got to take another route. Have I got enough petrol in my car? I've got a quarter of a tank, not ha- not half a tank to get all the way around to do an hour's journey that could take 15 minutes. And it's that unpredictability sometimes I do miss because it's um, it's it's the nature of, of life in Israel-Palestine. Um, and sometimes it yeah, it's, it's chaotic, but it's, yeah, it, it gives you a reality check. Um, yeah, definitely.
0: I know your mum, um, you mentioned your mum is Scottish, and she, obviously, she she lived her early life in Britain. She comes back now and again. If I were to ask her the same question, what do you think she would answer? Because she's been living that dichotomy in, in a different kind of way to you. How do you think she would feel? And and also for, for many Palestinians, um, the, the whole idea, the, the whole concept of being a refugee is obviously very real to Palestinians. But I'm thinking particularly of Palestinians living in East Jerusalem or living in the West Bank. It, maybe some of them dream, you know, that one day they might go and live either in Britain and America or somewhere like that. Do you think? Do you think they would feel this same sense of, do you think they'd come here and then think after a while, gosh, do you know what, i rather miss the checkpoints?
1: Yeah, you. Uh, that's, that's a very good question because uh, it's a love-hate relationship with checkpoints because I, I essentially grew up behind a checkpoint for 14 years um, and that's what I was accustomed to, um, having to go, to, it used to take my parents about two hours to drive me to school every day to do something that was about 100 metres. Whereas now, you know, if I were a child of that age of 12 going to school, it would take them 20 minutes to drive me to school. You know, so life, if you'd asked that question 20 plus years ago, then I would have given you a different answer. But I'll I'll answer your first question about uh, my mother living uh, living in Jerusalem. So she, um, it's an interesting story because she, I, I often joke about it with her that she's lived in Jerusalem now longer than she ever has in the UK, so, so I actually joke sometimes that she's more Palestinian than I am, even in her mentality, because <laughs> she um, she she never formally studied Arabic, but she picked it up locally having lived there for 30 plus years, and her Arabic sometimes is a bit stronger than mine, It's it's better in terms of it comes out more naturally. Um, and but it it also has a bit of an accent and a twang that it comes from the south of Palestine, um, and it often, you know, um, she has colloquialisms of um, you know Bedouin colloquialism because she's a sees a lot of patient from the be, patients from the Bedouin community, and it it makes me laugh. And I often ask her, would you ever consider moving back to the UK? And she said, oh no way, you know, I've got the sunshine, I've got the food, I've got the community, I've got the culture. There is um, all all the, the the difficulties of of experiencing the Gulf War and the intifadas is all part of what her identity her experiences and like you know what her lifestyle that I think it's almost too quiet for her in the UK now because she she was so young when she moved but it was part of her growing up and I and I reflect on some some of my friends they um, Um, their aunts and uncles, um, during the second intifada in 2001, um, had emigrated to Canada or to America, and they did that because they were um, looking for new opportunities overseas, whether it was to work, you know, job security, but moving over with extended family, because there was, I I guess, people, people fleeing conflict, fleeing an intifada, because you know there is that inherent fear that if you've experienced it once in in the 90, in late 1980s after the Gulf War, and it happens again, that's a relived trauma. And then you know, so you you a lot of people I knew from uh, Palestinian communities actually emigrated to find a better life. And it's interesting. I asked them the question, "Would you ever return?" Because they can return, but. It would come at a, in, in a huge cost and time, legal costs, um, to actually reinstate their status back in Palestine. It's not as, as simple as going into immigration you know an immigration office. It could take at least two years, sometimes ten, and it really depends if you have enough money to go through that court case to do that, um, to reinstate yourself. But they often fantasize and romanticize about Palestine, the culture, that sense of community, that you get in Jerusalem, that you don't, or Palestine, even in Israel, within Arab communities in Israel, um, that you don't get to the to the same level ex, or that extent overseas.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I I have relatives who are Irish, and you know, many of my cousins emigrated to the the states or to the UK, and. Um, it's a very interesting question that arises eventually is, you know, am I, am I still Irish? I mean, quite often emigres um, celebrate the culture even more, you know, with more enthusiasm than the people living, still living at home. Um, so I'm, gonna, I'm emboldened to ask you, Connie, um, you, you, how, how do you see your identity? What is your identity? Where is your home? And what does it mean to be Palestinian, but not living in Palestine?
1: Yeah, that's a, a good question. Because it's um, being of two different, I would say three cultures, I suppose, uh, my family history, my ancestors um, actually immigrated from Lebanon. So I have, I mean, this about six generations ago. So I have a bit of Lebanese um, heritage and culture. And often I wonder how Lebanese do I feel, and I don't at all. Um, and you know, how Palestinian do I feel? And I think I feel more Palestinian when I'm in the UK, definitely. Um, And that's, you know, I think it's, you know, it's, you know, when I'm in Jerusalem, I, I get a mix of both. I sometimes feel Scottish, actually. (laughs) So if I'm going to an event like, you know, um, an event at um, St. Andrew's Church in Jerusalem, which is Scottish church, um, then I will feel, and it's interesting, I will feel very Scottish all of a sudden that evening. So I embrace the haggis, I embrace the bagpipe, and I get quite emotional when the bagpipes play play as well, which is which is funny because it only happens once a year. Um, but, um, yeah, I think it really depends on where I am, which group social groups I'm in. And I'm very privileged to be able to have two different cultures. I think I... Find, um, I think I find comfort in Palestinian culture and heritage um, because there is, you know, I can ref- I can look at books, history books, or cultural books, or museums, and know that f- my family history, the heritage, there is a specific Tatriz for the Muslim family, um, there is a um, stories that pass down from my grandmother, my grandfather um, and stories from my great grandfather of the significance and um, place we had as Christians, as a Christian family in Jerusalem. And um, so that those stories that I grew up with are what um, I cherish and and look at fondly. Um, And I guess that's because of my childhood was always about being told these stories by my grandmother, I feel that that is what I associate as home, that's what I feel comfort, that's what my identity is as a, as a Palestinian. Um, and, you know, it's, I, I don't actually feel that as in my Scottish or my English heritage, and perhaps that could be maybe that the stories weren't passed down from, you know, my ancestors, but it's, these are, identity has lots of it really depends on on the groups that I'm with.
0: I mean, I think what I heard there, uh, I hope I'm not imagining this, is that actually your sense of belonging you have a you have a strong sense of belonging to uh, a, a Palestinian family, a Palestinian tradition, Palestinian heritage, and and um, so I, I, that that's what's coming through quite strongly. And and I hope this isn't you know this isn't meant to be an unfair question um, and and don't feel you have to answer it. Do you ever does that ever? Because I'm conscious that we're we're talking and and this is the whole point of this series. We're talking about um, very human things, and you're talking about um, thoughts and feelings. Um, but we're we're aware, of course, particularly in relation to Palestine, but it would be true Syria Iraq. I mean, anywhere that, that there's so much politics as well. Um, and we're, we're not talking about that uh, just at the moment. Do you ever sent but but with that in mind and with, with with the with with in the back of your mind, the news that comes through every now and again that something terrible has happened. Someone's been killed. Someone's been stabbed or, you know, there's been an incursion into Gaza or whatever do you ever feel any sense of guilt that that this sense of belonging you you feel that belonging but 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 you but it's not where you are
1: that's a good question um because the sense the only sense of guilt, guilt I have is that I have been fortunate to live in different countries they're all different parts of, of the puzzle um, which have, which have informed how more Palestinian I feel, um, you know, but and it's interesting that we talk about different identities. Being a Jerusalemite feels different to being a Palestinian. And why I emphasise the difference is because when, you know, what you hear in the media is that, you know, you talk about Palestinians, Palestinians and it's very one dimensional. And Palis- when you talk, Palestine itself is I don't feel national nationalistic my identity comes from heritage stories from my sense of belonging and my place in Jerusalem so I actually feel more East Jerusalemite than I ever have Palestinian and that's because I don't associate my identity with a state and that the only reason is because that was not the environment in which I grew up with I you know I I was fortunate to to study in in a mixed school that it was a non-religious school um, and it was um, was a European school in Jerusalem and um, and it's interesting I always ask my parents why they put me in a European French speaking school and not in a Palestinian school Um, and this was the only reason this is why it was is because um, of this of the first intifada And what happened in the first intifada was that schools went on strike teachers um or you know teachers couldn't get to lessons to teach children um and there were only two schools available that were open throughout the first and the second intifada and one was an american school and one was a french school so that's why i went into a french school and so my and i it was a really tiny school it was only about 150 people um and from you know, from from age three, I was there up until 18. So I actually grew up with a lot of um, school kids from Europe, from um, Palestine, from Israel, from Jerusalem. Um, They were Jews, they were Muslims, they were Christians. So my identity as a Jerusalemite Palestinian actually stemmed from my experiences at school. I grew up in an environment where you weren't an environment that didn't um nurture nationalism it and it didn't i associate heritage or identity with um with a state um so we were, and i'm really thankful for that for that because we were in i was in a bubble where i saw everybody as equal and how i felt as a Palestinian, you know jerusalemite i felt um as equal and as everybody else um yeah i hope that answers your question
0: no that's really interesting does it does it frustrate you ever that 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 many people if they if they meet you or meet another palestinian they will immediately jump to their idea of the things that must be important to you you know um but actually those are things that that they have they have decided are important to them and, and maybe not so important to you. I mean, it's such a politicized identity. And what I'm hearing from you, Connie, is that it, not for you. Um, and so I just wonder, is it frustrating? Do you sort of sometimes think, gosh, you know, that's not really how I'm experiencing the world?
1: Yeah, that's a, it's interesting, interesting question. So was, I I'm always aware that if I'm asking somebody where they're from, what I'm asking them is, you know, where are, where do you feel at home? What, what is home for you? Whether it's you're from London or whether you're from, I don't know, Eritrea or, you know, whichever country you're from, doesn't really matter. Where do you feel you are from, whether it's a city? So I've, I've never associated identity with a state. And we can talk a little bit about that in terms of, you know, what, you know, citizenship, what does that mean? But that's a bigger conversation. And and citizenship actually doesn't, for me, you know, it's, it doesn't have citizenship as a privilege, and it gets you places, especially if you're a Palestinian. But what I'm, you know, I, I, it is true that, you know, because people like to see put people in a box, right, we like to see people in a dimension, because that's how we feel we can associate, we can connect with them and have deeper meaningful conversations. But actually, mm-hmm. I'd like to turn the question around and say, um, you know, where where do you where do you come from? You know, what is your story? Um, you know, and what is your identity identity? How do you identify yourself as and you know, being it is true that when people say, Oh, you're Palestinian, oh, you know, you're they were people and and it's I get this question from people that actually live overseas, people not from the Middle East. There's an assumption you're a Palestinian and therefore you are nationalistic. You you come with an agenda. Actually, I would like to challenge that and say no. Identity for me is what is your experience? What's your story? Where do you come from? And yeah, where are you going? Um, absolutely,
0: yeah. That makes you the perfect person for 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 us to be talking to for the first of this series, Connie. Just one one last thing, and then we'll wrap up. I mean, you're, you 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 come across very, if I might say so very at ease with your identity and uh, whatever that means to you um, and with who you are and with where you've come from and so on. if if I think you have a British passport, if you didn't have a British passport, would it would it be? Would it be more uncomfortable? Um, and by which I mean, you know, you're a Jerusalemite, Jerusalemite, and, and you've made that really clear. Um, but as a Jerusalemite, y- you you wouldn't otherwise be entitled to a passport as we, you know, privileged Brits think of it. Uh, I have an Irish passport actually, but same thing. So so would that have? Would that be much? What difference would that make to you?
1: Um, so I've a huge difference. I've seen f- friends, neighbours for the community that actually don't have passports in Jerusalem and what they have is a, a, a document called the laissez-passer and that laissez-passer is a legal document, a visa or a permit, if you like, that um, that you pay for and it can be six months, two years, it can be valid for as long as you pay for up until I think it's a limit of five years. Um, And that is a um, your token to leave the country via a specific airport. And then you apply for another one, which is a token a ticket to get back into the country. So actually, you're, when I when I talk about citizenship as being a privilege, actually, if you have an Israeli passport, you can fly via Ben and you can fly wherever you like. A, a majority of countries in the world will um, accept you as um, a citizen. But if I didn't have a passport, I would I would find life very difficult because I wouldn't have access to freedom to travel via any pass- any airport I wanted. I, I, you know, filling out documents, legal papers, when they ask you what's your citizenship and you put stateless, what does that mean for you as an individual? And, and I have friends that actually, my friend's um, dad, who's over the age of 60, that doesn't have a passport, he's never had a passport. And he it gives him incredible anxiety getting onto a plane because there is no guarantee that he will be welcomed back into his country because one, he could lose his papers, right? Um, and two, uh, an uprising could occur, for example, right? Or there's, there is no guarantee that you are as a stateless person, you can come back to your own country and statelessness is, is a, a very special case, because if you're in the West Bank, if you live in the West Bank, or you live in Gaza, you have Palestinian passport, which enables you to travel to certain countries, you know, and you can fly via specific airports. If you are living in East Jerusalem, or West Jerusalem, if you live in West Jerusalem, the likelihood that you have an Israeli passport is... Um, is high, so you could tr- go and come as you like. Um, if you are from East Jerusalem, because of how legislation works in East Jerusalem, actually it's a no man's land. It's under the protection of Israel by law. Um, as a protected person, you are stateless, and what it means is you can either acquire the occupying state's passport, so an Israeli passport, or you go with none. Or you apply for different passports via, whether it's marriage to so your spouse or um, inheritance. So you've, right, you're, you're born with that privilege, but I think it's it, citizenship is a is a privilege and it's a pass to freely move. And I think it would be very difficult if I didn't have a passport. I would feel insecure. I would feel. Um, life would be very difficult and very expensive. Um, and, and accessibility is... becomes a privilege, not a right. Yeah, fundamentally.
0: Thank you, Connie. Um, we're going to finish this uh, podcast with a, with, a, with a very difficult question. In fact, two difficult questions. OK, so brace yourself. The first is, when I go to a Palestinian restaurant, What should I order? And the second is when I go to Jerusalem, where should I eat?
1: (laughs) Um, What should you order in a Palestinian restaurant? It really depends on where you're going. (laughs) It really depends if yeah, I am. Let's pretend you're
0: running. You're running the restaurant. (laughs) OK, you have full full control of the of the uh,
1: the, the menu. Um, The thing I would order is Castelleta and what that is, because you can never really go wrong, but it depends if you're vegan or if you're vegetarian. I think you just have no hope in like in what in this recipe because it's just meat and barbecued vegetables. Um, but but it's incredible. And sorry, I, as I was thinking about the food, I forgot what your second question was. So
0: the second question is thank you, Castelletta. Have I is that Castelletta? <laughs> Correct, okay. yeah. Okay. You're okay. a little so already. So I know I know where I'm gonna order, I know what I'm gonna order. But I'm in East, or I'm in Jerusalem, it doesn't have to be East Jerusalem. And I, I need to go to a restaurant to order, which one should I go to?
1: So that I have two favourite restaurants in Jerusalem, one's in West and one's in East. The West, definitely, if you go down Salahuddin Street, in near the Old City, um, yeah. and there's a. there are lots of like little shops and restaurants. You'll have a lot of open barbecue, like, as we like to call it. But... Um, of the equivalent of shawarma but I wouldn't order a shawarma, I'd order a falafel. You just can't go wrong and it has to be hot and warm and done there and then because when you go I always recommend that if you're going into a um, you know to get a falafel always ask the chef to make the falafel in front of you and don't get the ones on the on the side on the counter because it's just the fresher the better um if i was in Westeros, there's a really cool um restaurant it's a modern one and i forget what the name is because i only went in once but um it's it's hidden in um in a tiny alleyway and um it looks like a bar but it's in a cave and they have all sorts of foods, but it's always local and it could be the equivalent of your and It's just wonderful. And it, they have some really good wine. So it's a really good place. And, and they open on Friday night, which is very rare to, in West Jerusalem, because, of course, it's Shabbat. But it's, well, you, it's a really cool place.
0: You obviously know all the best places. I'll take the wine, but I'm going to have a glass of uh, Arak, if you don't mind as well.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> Connie, thank listen, thank you so much. It's been wonderful to talk to you and, and you absolutely fascinating. You. And, and I, I'm, I really hope our, our, uh, our listeners enjoy uh, listening to Connie's Middle East.